0: to people about asylum, I think that most people don't seem to realize that you know, these are people that are fleeing that are unable to return to their country. I think that people conflate people that are seeking asylum because they are they're risking being persecuted or tortured. They're conflating it with people that are looking just for a better life in the United States. People that are applying for asylum are actually applying because they are afraid that if they are returned, they will be killed or they'll be tortured or persecuted. These are not these are not people that are just seeking a better life.
1: You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is talking with us about the legal process to apply for asylum in the United States. Jordan Forsyth is an immigration attorney in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte is one of the most difficult places in the United States to get asylum. From 2016 to 2021, the strictest judge had a denial rate of 99.3 percent, and the most lenient has a denial rate of 82.9 percent. If you applied for asylum in the last five years in Charlotte, your chance of gaining asylum status was about 1 in 10. Here's Jordan Forsyth talking about her experiences as an immigration and asylum lawyer in Charlotte. Your hosts for today are Claire Mattis and Diana Clark.
0: My name is Jordan Grace Forsyth, and I am an immigration attorney in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm board certified by the state of North Carolina.
2: And um, how long have you been in this line of
0: work? This is my 14th year. I became an immigration attorney to help one person.
2: Could you explain the asylum process just so our viewers have a like understanding of what that is? Because I know a lot of people are kind of lost on like what actually goes on.
0: Great question. So the asylum process is for people that are inside of the United States who want protection from being returned to their home country. They have to show that they are physically present in the United States, that they are unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, because if they did, they would be persecuted or tortured based on one of five reasons. Either their race, their religion, their political opinion, their ethnicity, their national origin, or they're a member of a particular social group. And that that is the reason that they're being persecuted.
2: So because they have to prove that they you know, have a reason to they can't return to their home country. Is it sometimes difficult to prove that or like do they have to prove on a personal level why they can't return? Or can you make the case that, you know, the country in general is unstable and that's why they can't return?
0: So I'm gonna answer the question just in, in the way that you presented it, but really how you ended the question is the answer. They, they can't obtain asylum based off of general country um, strife or violence or problems. We do have a benefit in the United States called temporary protected status that is afforded to countries that have, it, that have been designated for general country conditions. But for asylum, they have to show that they have a particular claim. As far as obtaining evidence of that, it can be very difficult for asylum seekers because they're fleeing and it can oftentimes be difficult. We work with clients a lot of time in, when they have family that remained in the home country, a lot of time to obtain that proof. But people don't normally say, hmm, I'm fleeing violence. Let me go and, and collect all of my records of all of the violence. They are just, there escaping. So most asylum seekers do not have the physical proof with them. But with the assistance of, of legal counsel and um, support, usually in country, um, they're able to obtain some of that proof. Oftentimes, we're able to obtain it you know, over the internet as well.
2: I guess that goes to my next question, really, is we're reading that Charlotte has one of the most you know, difficult asylum courts in the country. Are there any particular reasons why it's so difficult to win a case in, in Charlotte?
0: Uh, there, there's, there are several reasons um, why it's difficult. The immigration court is is not an independent court. It is actually a branch that falls under the Department of Justice. And so essentially what that means is it's a political position. Um, The judges are appointed and they work for the Department of Justice and they are not independent. So that's probably why. But also um, there's the, the oversight for it. So it's very difficult based off of the judges that are independently in Charlotte. Um, we have had some turnover with the judges. So we are hopeful that those numbers are going to change. We do have two new judges that are in Charlotte that are not actually appearing on the, on the registry. If you look up the, the immigration court in Charlotte, um, they currently list you know, the judges that are there. It doesn't include two judges that are actually there, and it includes one that's actually gone. So the composition of our court has changed, and we are hopeful that the asylum grant rates will also reflect those
2: changes. Based on your personal experience you know, in asylum court, uh, do you have any personal opinions of the court system in Charlotte that you'd like to share um, that our audience should know about, maybe?
0: I just think that all of the immigration courts around the country need to be an independent court that's what needs to happen, um, regardless of where it is. But I think that as far as access to, ju- um, to justice um, is really what you're what you're seeking. The biggest problem that I see in asylum is it really depends on where you're located in the country, the success of what what your um, what your chances are for success.
2: Like if you could think of some things that people should definitely know about this process that may that people may not know, what would you um, talk about?
0: So, you know, when I talk to people about asylum, I think that most people don't seem to realize that, you know, these are people that are fleeing that are unable to return to their country. I think that people conflate people that are seeking asylum because they are, they're risking being persecuted or tortured. They're conflating it with people that are looking just for a better life in the United States. People that are applying for asylum are actually applying because they are afraid that if they're returned, they will be killed or they'll be tortured or persecuted. These are not, these are not people that are just seeking a better life.
2: You know, going off of that, I was thinking, so when people like when they lose an asylum court and they don't receive asylum, can they try over and over again? Or does the cost, I mean, does it cost so much money that they can't do that as often? Where do they go when they lose? Like if they lose a court case.
0: Okay. So I guess I'll back up. How do you apply for asylum when you're in the United States? Right. Okay. So if you're applying in, in immigration court, that means that you are applying defensively for asylum. It right. means that you have most likely... Either come to the border and presented yourself and said, "Please let me in. I need help. I'm afraid to return,"
1: mm-hmm. or
0: they have crossed um, crossed through and they've been apprehended by immigration and they express a fear. They get through a credible fear interview and then they're allowed to present their claim to an immigration judge. Generally speaking, they have one year to apply. It's very complicated because most people don't have attorneys at that point and they're not aware of the one-year filing deadline. Mm-hmm. and immigration courts are so backlogged that their first court will not happen before their first year. There have been some federal lawsuits that have actually changed that and created some exceptions to filing for the one year, but the general rule is you have one year to apply for asylum. When you apply for asylum in front of the immigration judge, you have to you know present your application and support it with evidence. Um, that evidence, if you don't have any physical evidence, you can support it with a written declaration that explains what you've been through, and then you get calendared for an individual hearing where you'll have your own time to speak with the immigration judge and present your claim. If you are in the United States, but you haven't been apprehended by immigration, or if you entered the United States with a visa and you are within that year or things have changed and you're eligible for an exception, but you still need protection because you can't go back to your country, you apply for immigration and you apply directly with immigration. USCIS is the agency that has jurisdiction over asylum applications when the government is not actively seeking to deport. But that one year um, also applies. You affirmatively apply for your asylum case and then immigration receives it. You do biometrics and then you wait for the interview.
2: That, that makes sense. That that's, um, actually answers one of my other questions about the mm-hmm. difference between defensive yeah. and offensive mm-hmm. asylum.
0: Now, when you when you apply directly with immigration, immigration does not have the authority to deny an application for asylum. They can either approve the application or they can refer it to the immigration judge and the immigration judge will be the first like appellate review of this case where you can renew your claim for asylum and you can ask for protection. If you are approved at immigration, then you're an asylum, you live with your asylum status for a year, and then you can apply to become a permanent resident. You can also immigrate other family members that are derivatives off of that application. If you have an asylum application that is pending in the immigration court and it is approved, hopefully the, the government attorneys do not appeal that decision and the decision's final. A year from that date, you can become a, a citizen. Unfortunately, most asylum cases are denied in the immigration court. So you have the opportunity to appeal. If you are not granted asylum by an immigration judge, the alternative order would be an order of removal, which is a deportation order, but it's not final if you appeal that. And the appellate court is all done through the mail. It's another administrative body that is not independent um, and it sits in Falls Church, Virginia, and they make the decision on whether or not the immigration judge made the right decision. Generally speaking, it is an all-paper practice. No one appears personally in front of the appellate court, which is called the Board of Immigration Appeals. If that is denied, then you may have the opportunity to take it to circuit court to get into, to get a level of federal review by filing a petition for review. But it has to, it has to state a reason that will fit in, because generally speaking, judicial review of immigration court matters. Generally speaking, that power was stripped away by Congress when they when they passed the last big immigration reform back in 1996.
2: Wow, that is a lot of stuff I did not know about immigration court. I think that it's really important to include this in the podcast because we you know, we talk about these things, but we don't really understand the, I guess, the like mechanics of it once they get here.
0: The other thing that I wanted to share is that um, the government does not provide attorneys for asylum seekers. It doesn't matter even if they're a minor, if they're a child, if it's a you know a five-year-old child going to court, they do, they are not appointed attorneys. Um, if they don't have an attorney, they have to represent themselves, and they're they're held to the same legal standard as the government, which is represented by an attorney.
2: Wow, that is that's surprising. Actually, I did not know that.
0: It's because it's administrative proceedings and it's not an independent court. So it's not like bankruptcy court. They just don't have the same protections. So, so one of the things that you had asked is, um, you know, is it because it's expensive? Is it, you know, is that why people aren't appealing? And it, it is expensive for someone to, to hire a private attorney. And there are very few nonprofits that have the ability or the bandwidth or the funding to be able to, um, to defend a lot of asylum seekers in immigration court. I know our office, we, um, we charge flat fees and we finance it for our clients because they don't have access to credit. Um, so we'll finance it over time with no interest. And so when you look at the life of the case, it ends up being a very, it's, it's a very large amount of money for a person all at one time. But if they can pay it over time with a very small amount each month, then it's doable. That's how a lot of attorneys do it. Obviously we take on, you know, pro bono cases as well, but that's that's generally how people pay it. Most attorneys who do asylum work will finance it for their clients and allow them to pay over time and usually charge a flat fee. Um, and these cases can go on for years. I mean, I have I think my longest running asylum case right now that I currently have open in my office, we filed eight years ago. I think, I don't know. I think the most important thing for people is just to, to realize, you know, whether or not they are or are not qualified. And I know that your audience, probably they aren't the asylum seekers listening, but there are a lot of people out there that are preying on these people. There are there are people that don't have a law license that are notarios, you know, that will file cases for people when they're not eligible for asylum and then attempt to get them work authorization after they've lived in the United States for a long time. There are also attorneys who have filed asylum cases for people that end up in the Charlotte immigration court. They have filed asylum cases for people who've been in the United States for more than 10 years and have us citizen children with the promise that filing this asylum application, they'll be able to qualify for a green card under 10 years when they get to immigration court. And that is, that is not a proper use of the asylum. I don't know if you want to include that in this podcast. I just no. want to, maybe that could be a separate podcast. that's on, You know, maybe examples of where where immigrants are being taken taken advantage of.
1: Oh yeah. Just I don't
0: want to conflate those because I just my concern with your audience is that there is a lot of abuse in the asylum system, but I don't think it's the majority of people that are actually that are applying for asylum. I just it's really it's a delicate situation on how to present it to where it's not creating rhetoric for the other side.
2: Yeah. No, I'm definitely glad you included that. I do think that's important for our audience to like understand the differences and, you know, what goes along with that. So if there's any more you'd like to say about that, feel free to, Mm -hmm. you
0: know. Yeah, I mean, not for a side because they don't qualify for a sense. I don't think that that it really qualifies. But, um, you know, I do think that that's that's something important to know. Um, You know, I did listen to some of your previous episodes and absolutely love this podcast. So I think it's important what you guys are doing. But, you know, one thing that is, A lot of time, people that are are coming to the United States and seeking asylum, oftentimes they are eligible for other forms of relief as well, especially if they're minors. And that can often be a more direct path through special immigrant juvenile status. So that is something if we had, um, we have a lot of minor clients and even though they think that they want asylum um, and they would qualify for applying, we make the decision to do special immigrant status because the chances of success are much higher.
2: Repeat what that was special. You said special. Immigrant.
0: Special immigrant juvenile status. Okay. It is um, it is a visa that's available for children who've been abandoned, neglected or abused by one or both of their parents. And if you can get a dependency order or a state court to issue a custody order before the child ages out. So in most states, that's 18. There are a couple of states where that's 21, just because the state law considers them to be minors of the court until a certain age. But in North Carolina, where I'm licensed in practice, they are considered minors until they're 18. If if we can get the one order, the custody order from the family court judge, then we're able to use that for them to self-petition and wait in line for a green card. It's a much better route for um, for a lot of asylum seekers who are minors. So, if there's an asylum seeker out there who's a minor, they should investigate whether or not they're also eligible for special immigrant status.
2: That's really interesting. I actually wasn't aware of that like option for those people. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of your clients, we did one episode where we just asked USC students, you know, what they knew about refugees or asylum seekers, and a lot of them were they wanted to know more about like the demographic of people coming in from like the East Coast. So, based on your experience. Do you have a specific demographic that, you know, is really present in Charlotte that you're representing, or is it a good mix of people?
0: I've looked at the existing asylum cases that we have open right now in my office, and right now we have, you know, just under 40. And this afternoon, we're probably getting another one. So we'll have, you know, probably 40 cases by the time this airs. Plus, we have another 10 that are on appeal. And out of those, you know, the majority are from Central America, but we do have several that are um, from Africa as well and South America. And then we have one from Mexico. Um, so that'd be North America.
2: Because I've noticed a lot of students usually ask about that. We're never exactly sure, you know, how to account for mm-hmm. um. but we also speak Spanish.
0: So I'm bilingual and um, most people in my office speak Spanish. So we, we have a lot of clients that are um, yep. able to service. So just because of the language, but you know, we do represent people in other countries that have asked for asylum. The current ones that we have open are in various, um, various countries in Africa.
2: For the Afghan refugees that will be or evacuees that are, um, are coming to the United States, do you know how that legally would work if it's different than, you know, an asylum case because they're, you know, bypassing a lot of these other requirements for being a refugee? Do you know how that would work legally for these people coming here? Yes. So
0: the difference between a refugee and an asylee is, is where they are when they're designated. So um, refugees are able to apply outside of the United States to come in. So it's already been determined before they're admitted that they are unable to remain in their country or return in their country, return to their country because they meet that definition, because they'll be persecuted or tortured on account of one of those five reasons, their race, their religion, their political opinion their um, their uh, national origin or their membership in a particular social group. So that determination has been made by the Department of State outside of the United States before they came.
2: Okay. Um,
0: yeah. The Department of State also works with agencies that have been designated um, to be able to help them resettle. They're called resettlement agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one in Charlotte called um, Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency. I actually served on the board when they, um, when they were formed. Um, back in 2010 HIAS, which is another organization that resettles a lot of refugees each year had a satellite office in Charlotte well they they pulled back their operations and that agency you know decided that they didn't want to go away that they wanted to continue to serve refugees so they um, they started a a new organization called Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency. They're in Charlotte. We also have World, World agency. We also have Catholic Charities. There are several um, Lutheran Family Services. There are, there are several different agencies that, are, that have been designated by the Department of State as being qualified to resettle refugees. What happens is the Department of State will notify them how many refugees they're going to get. Because there are specific requirements, refugees are required to to repay the government for a portion of what was used to resettle them. But when someone is brought to the U.S., the agencies need to find them a suitable housing, and there are all kinds of really strict requirements about you know how many beds need to be in the house based off of how many people. And there are you know, different requirements on making sure that they have access to, you know, to, to jobs because they are going to have to repay a portion of what was used to resettle them. So the main difference between refugees and asylees is they're out of the country. They come in because they've already been designated. Many of the asylum seekers, there's no place for them to register outside. And so that's why, you know, that's why they're here. Another question that people a lot of times have when you're looking at resettling refugees is, well, how do they decide who's going to come to Charlotte versus who's going to go to New York and who's going to go to Wisconsin or whatever? Um, And they interview the refugees outside of the country and determine, do you have a community? So you'll notice that there are small communities that, you know, like there's an Afghan community in Charlotte. And so, you know, they, they identified, we have family or friends because they're going to be more successful if they're in a community where they know people and they're going to be more successful in, in communities where there's, you know, you know, access to their language and different things like that.
2: The last time we talked, we um, you mentioned that you had a colleague who had done an asylum case virtually. Would you want to tell us about that? And like, what was, that was like and what a virtual court case is like for the lawyer or the client really?
0: Yeah, um absolutely. um So right now, because of COVID, many of the courts have, you know, conducted individual hearings as well as master calendar hearings virtually. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What that essentially means is you can either call in like on a phone, just an open phone line or video in. So there's like a secure connection and there's big televisions in the court. I've been in hearings where I am physically present with the client and the government attorney has kind of zoomed in. It's not zoom they're using. It's another closed, um, you know, video circuit that they're able to log into. So I've, I've been in court where they've had, you know, the judge is present, the interpreter is present, and then we are present, you know, the defense attorney as well as the client, but the government attorney is not there. Recently, we had one, an asylum case um, that my partner conducted, and both my partner and the client and the government attorney, everyone was remote. And so in that case, We made the decision just based off of of that particular client, that that client wanted to get bored and actually felt more comfortable doing it virtually. Um, I think in most cases, I think it's absolutely imperative that the asylum seeker be in front of the judge so that you can pick up on body language. I mean, video helps, at least you can see, but there still can be a lot of distractions. You're not 100% sure is the judge actually you know, looking at me, is the judge paying attention? Is he able to see? You're not able to hundred percent know that when you're virtual, um, you know, right now we're talking, but you could be looking at your email. So, you know, there's no way to really know what you really have up on your screen, but in this particular case, um, you know, this person felt very heard. The judge was a very active listener in the case. And, um and, and we felt like it was the best opportunity because the client did not want to wait for an in-person hearing but generally speaking it's extremely important that everyone be in the same room so there's not miscommunication especially depending on the language barriers back in 2000 and Oh, I can't remember what year, but I can I can figure out back back during the um, the Obama administration when they initially started detaining women and children. I went down to the Dilly Detention Center and spent a week volunteering, helping people get their asylum places, helping with credible fear interviews. And in that situation, we were both the the respondent, who's the person that's asking for asylum, and the volunteer attorneys. We were in the courtroom in Dilly, Texas and the judges were virtually in another court, and the government attorneys were virtually somewhere else, and the interpreters were somewhere else. Well, the problem that we were encountering is a lot of people didn't speak Spanish. And so the interpreters wouldn't, there were actually two layers of interpreters. So imagine the telephone game. And so you're doing virtual interpreters and virtual telephone games, and it's just that would be extremely, uh, extremely 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 risky when you're talking about someone's life and due process they really need the opportunity to be able to to hear have their case heard
2: yeah that hasn't been an issue in charlotte right that usually interpreters are do they like show up present most of the time if that's like because of that? you know, i mean this was a,
0: yeah the, this was the very first asylum hearing that we had been asked to do virtually Okay. in the future. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another case that I have that I would do that. I would object to that and say, no, we want an in-person hearing and we're just going to continue it until we can have that because it's important that the judge is able to not only, you know, see the evidence in person, but also establish a credibility, you know, in person. I guess the only other thing that I would add about asylum seekers that you may want to know is just, you know, how do they survive while they're here and they're asking for help? Because um, the United States does not make it easy to apply for asylum. Number one, we have this arbitrary one year that you have to ask for help, um, which can be extremely difficult when you have just fled your country. And I mean, people don't show up asking for asylum, you know, with you know, buckets of money and time and energy. I mean, they're literally just trying to survive. But even if they even if they have managed to do that, for them to be able to apply for work authorization so that they can support themselves during this time, mm-hmm. they have to wait till their application has been pending for 150 days before they can even apply. And then after they've applied, after 150 days, right now it's taken about nine months. So it's extremely difficult for asylum seekers. So I know, um, you know, many, many attorneys will defer their fees until after they're able to start working. Um, It's just, it's extremely difficult. Um, They don't have, despite, you know, what people think, they come in and they get all these free things. They don't. They don't get free attorneys. They don't get free medical. They don't get free food. They don't get any of these things. So it's, um, it is extremely difficult for asylum seekers. But refugees, on the other hand, when they come in, they do have a support network. So they do have access because they've already met the definition. They were, you know, the Department of State outside of the country determined they're unable or unwilling to return to their country um, because of one of these five reasons. They are eligible to get medical care. They're eligible to get assistance through food and through housing. But again, they're going to have to repay some of this, but they are, they do have access to that immediately. Whereas an asylum seeker in the United States does
2: not. Are there a lot of charities set up for asylum seekers or is it more towards refugees, I guess?
0: So as far as charities to help them, if one's receiving money from the government, there are all kinds of strings that get attached to money. So a lot of times, you know, they're able to use it, but only for a specific purpose. And so there aren't, I'm not aware of many agencies that have funding that's there just to help asylum seekers the the help out there is extremely limited
2: yeah
0: so most most people that are in the us asking for asylum they're relying on family to help them because oftentimes they have family in the United States We have a very long complicated history with Central America and South America I mean just uh, We don't need to get into the geopolitics politics of all of it, but we have a very long history that has created this, but many people that are, have decided to come to the U.S. for help have come here because they do have family here and they would have a safety net while they're applying for help.
2: Are there any questions you have for us that you want, um, you know, questions about the podcast or anything else you want to include? Um, No, I
0: just, I wanted to make you guys aware of track. Um, it gives you all of the asylum grant rates. So you access that through Syracuse and then you can look up, you can actually look up judges and it's really, it's just the denial rates. Again, the judges move around a lot. So you can also search it by judge. You'll see you'll see how scary it is, but this is just for immigration judges. We don't have numbers on the approval rates for USCIS for um, for cases that are not filed defensively. The reason is that the privacy around asylum, it's, it's highly, highly, highly protected. Okay. Yeah. So this is one of those cases, most cases with immigration, if you file a case, you can track it online with a receipt number and kind of know where you stand. With asylum, you can't track it online because of privacy. They haven't put that information and um, they're still using an old system that still utilizes carbon paper. Do you see the process getting put digital anytime soon or why still the paper and pencil process for this? I I don't know. We'd have to ask immigration that, but but I imagine a couple of things, I mean, because of the privacy and because they're not going to be able to track it online and just, uh, I'm not sure why they're, I'm not sure how they're managing it on the inside. I'm just, I'm not sure why they haven't made the investment to, to upgrade that. I do know that, you know, there's a serious backlog and. Under the previous administration, they had instituted a first in first out policy because the previous administration was um, convinced that everyone was misusing the system and that they were just coming here because they wanted to, you know, just wanted to live in the United States. So they had made a policy that everyone that was already waiting in line for asylum, they would put the new arrival cases in front of them. And so you'd have another case had been pending for four or five years, and then somebody that had been here a month and their asylum case was heard. So they were trying to get through all of these cases really fast. And then also we've got the Remain in Mexico program, which, you know, was stopped and now reinstituted. So those were four asylum seekers that had come to the border, asked for protection, and then were forced to remain in Mexico. Some of them over a year, experiencing lots of violence, absolutely a violation of human rights and international law. But, you know, that, that was a process that was going on for a long time, and they have reinstituted that. So there are people currently remaining in Mexico that are seeking asylum. Whereas international law says that if someone comes to you asking for protection, you should not be returning them to an unsafe place. They should be allowed in and allowed to seek asylum here in the United States. So again, it's a very complicated situation. They have, um, the current administration has, has blamed COVID for part of the reason for, for this happening, but um, that's disingenuous. The last thing that I would really, really want people to understand is that, you know, coming to the United States without a visa and presenting yourself at the border to ask for asylum, you're only doing that because you think that you have no other option. And it is an extremely, extremely dangerous journey that is increasingly made by children traveling alone women and children traveling. I mean, it's dangerous for for anyone, but it's just, it's an extremely dangerous process. And if there was any alternative, people don't wanna leave their families. They don't wanna be separated, but they just don't have an alternative. And then the other thing that I think that I would probably want you to include on this is just understanding that people that work with asylum seekers are um, it's it's extremely difficult to work with victims of trauma. You have to be extremely delicate and very careful. And oftentimes, it requires a team of people to do it in a way that's not going to harm, you know, harm people more. Because in just retelling the story, you know, for some people it's therapeutic to have their, you know, to be heard. For others, it's re-traumatizing every time they have to relive, relive this and that secondary trauma. For the person that's hearing it, for attorneys and paralegals and caseworkers and social workers and whoever's working on these cases, there is a, there, there is like a real thing that happens called secondary trauma to people that are working and supporting these victims. Um, because, you know, hearing these stories day in and day out takes a toll. And so anyone I would just, you know, I want to send a great shout out and like support to anyone that is supporting asylum seekers and working with them, especially you guys that are having to hear these stories of people. Um, I know we haven't gotten into any of the details cause I don't want to share my client's personal stories. I can't do that and I won't do that, but I can tell you that they are applying because they, if they will return to their country, they wouldn't survive.
1: That was Jordan Forsyth talking to us about her experiences working as a lawyer in the asylum court in Charlotte, North Carolina. Your hosts for today were Claire Mattis and Diana Clark. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Refuge Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.